If you could open the scriptures to the third epistle to John. The third epistle to John. It's right at the back. You have third John, Jude, Jude, then Revelation. This will be my last message for 2018 and God willing over the next four Sundays we'll be looking at the book of Jude in some in quite some detail. First message in Jude next week God willing will be on the first two verses and we can put a title not that I have cemented this in fully but what it means to be a Christian. I really want to cement my last four messages in place to let you know and to go over again some of those fundamental details of what the Christian life is all about. And of course, the, we have two more messages after that and the last one I want to spend uh, at the end of January, God willing, will be on that famous doxology that we, or benediction, can I say, that we often read at the end of our services, 24 and 25. But this morning, what we're going to be looking at is this third epistle or third letter that John wrote to an individual with a strange name called Gaius. Okay? It brings a smile because we th- see the, hear the word gay and there was this guy, gay, no. It was his name. It was a very common name. And uh, so we will look at that. And so follow me as I read this letter to you. Verse 1 of Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. And you do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not not accept what we say. And for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with us. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. See, you've got the title of my message up there, Two Good Men and a Tyrant. But just as a um, 
an introduction as we end this year and look at 2019, we cannot help reflect on what has been and also anticipate on what will be, right? I know ourselves, 2019 is going to be a big sea change for us, God willing. But as Christians, you know what? We need to forget what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's what the Apostle Paul did, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. So often we can be hooked up on what was, even the mistakes we made and the sin that we've been uh, hooked into and we're tempted into and we can allow that to drag us down. No, 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 no. If you're a truly born-again believer, we are to look forward. Okay, we're to look forward. We're to forget what is behind and reach forward. In other words, as believers, we need to be a future-orientated people for Jesus Christ. That's it, period. But how can we be more and more like that in the year ahead? Can I suggest that if we submitted and allowed the love and truth of God to direct us and to flow from our lives as it should do in the days ahead, however many there may be, some of us less than others, if we allow that to happen, the days ahead would be used for God and his glory. I say this because if there ever was a day that we need to know and see love and truth because as you would have noticed as reading, love and truth, love and truth, love and truth is a predominant theme uh, in this letter like it has been in the other letters. If wherever we need to see this put into practice, it's today, folks. It really is. We certainly will not see genuine love and truth like we have here in our secular environment. And sad to say, it is becoming a scarce commodity in local churches today. But it's a church, the local church, that love and truth needs to be seen first and foremost. Otherwise, we just are a bunch of hypocrites speaking out the side of our mouths. Well, the Apostle John goes all out in the shortest letter in the New Testament And he highlights one aspect of what love and truth should look like in the local assembly or amongst believers, even to a wider capacity than the local assembly. But he also here warns readers with a real-life scenario of how that love and truth that should be seen in the lives of believers, how that can be abused and attacked amongst God's people. But if we back up a little bit, as I said before, we'll see that this love and truth theme is not new to John. Actually, he majors on it in the three letters that he writes. If you remember when we went through his first letter, love and truth is seen to be having a right fellowship with God. When I'm saying our first letter, a lot of us went through that in our home group. I didn't go through it here in the pulpit. If we remember that first letter, it's love and truth is is all about having a right relationship with God. And having a right relationship through faith in Jesus Christ will have a flow-on effect. And that flow-on effect, as First John tells us, will 
see how love for one another emanates from that. That's what 1 John majors on. In his second letter, love and truth are seen by and knowing and understanding who and what believers are not to have fellowship with. In the second letter we saw that love and truth is not to have fellowship with false teachers. You that famous verse, not even to entertain them or invite them inside, etc. And so accentuating the truth that we're not to treat them as if they were born again believers and one with us because they're not. We're to show discernment. That's where love and truth kicks in there. And here in his third letter, John encourages this practical love and truth through hospitable fellowship to those who, who go forward and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how does John set and display this love and truth dynamic in this third letter? How does he do that? Well, he focuses on two good men and a dictator in the church. It seems that the two good guys are put up for here for us to model, for believers right down through the ages into this present time, for us to model, while the bad guy is set up as a contrast and for our warning. So John writes this letter because troubles had hit the church in Asia Minor, which is kind of modern Turkey and around there. What had happened was there was in one of the churches this domineering man called Diotrephes. He had taken control of one of the churches in Asia and he had set himself up, can I say, like a, a ruling pope. And so this self-appointed authority ran to his head and when travelling ministers of the gospel came, when genuine believers and ministers of the gospel came, he felt threatened. And so what he did, he refused to welcome them and banned them from the church gatherings. But worse than that, he also refused to adhere to an earlier letter written by the Apostle John to rectify or hoping to rectify this problem. We read that in verse 9. And so this trouble that was, had arisen prompted John to write to beloved Gaius. He writes there here in order to commend and encourage the faithful to hold fast to the truth and to continue doing so in a loving and a generous manner. That's his purpose. So following the structure of this text that we have before us, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use these three men and what they stood for as transition points for my message. And the first and main point is centred on the first good man. And we'll call him the godly Gaius. We see this in verses 1 to 8, which is the biggest portion of the text, I might say. Gaius, as I mentioned before, was a common name around this period. And it's, there's twice other times it's mentioned the name is used in the New Testament. Once in Romans 16 and another time in Acts 20. And because it's such a common name, we can't be too sure if it was the same guy. However, one thing we do know that John was not only personally known to Gaius and, uh, and vice versa, but we do know that he really loved this man as a dear brother in the Lord. 
He really loved this man Gaius. And we can know that because he addressed him as beloved Gaius whom I love in the truth. Now as we read a little bit about this guy and we can look at this section, I don't think it would be too hard to love this kind of guy if he was in our church, right? And we do have some like him here in our church, I might say. Praise the Lord. Yes, it is true that we are called to love all believers and the Apostle John certainly did so. Make no mistake about that. But some stand out as exceptional and here is one of them. This was owing to his exceptional attitude and hospitality shown to ministers of the gospel. And so no wonder John calls him beloved. No wonder he dearly, he could say, I love in the truth. But I believe there is a more primary reason why John calls him beloved or beloved. Matter of fact, I believe it's the same reason he addressed the lady in 2 John, remember, as we went through there. He calls her the chosen lady. In other words, what we can see from this is that every true born-again believer is chosen of the Lord. That is, we're special to him. We're chosen before the foundation of the world. We're special to him. And every believer is also beloved, much loved by him. God so loved the world, but believers are much loved, divinely loved. Now in these two words we see again how we've mentioned on prior occasions how God's love and truth are inseparably linked. They go hand in hand. In other words, the truth is every believer is chosen by God, but also we are the divinely loved ones. That's the meaning of the word beloved, by the way. Divinely loved ones. But this divine title that John heaps upon Gaius in his introduction, they were not just words. They were not just something that kind of flowed out and without any heart in it. You see, though this title is based on God's truth about his people, it was a fact. That's what it was. It was truth. This descriptive title that the apostle gave Gaius also was worked out in Gaius's life. You see what I mean? In other words, for Gaius to be beloved and to be much loved by the Lord and to be divinely loved, it was not a secret in his life. For Gaius to be beloved by God, that is loved in truth, also by John, also means that this man was tremendously impacted and he was characterized by this divine love. It affected him. It made him be what he was. But before John goes into detail about that, he continues to greet Gaius with a normal greeting of the day, and we'll see this in verse 2. This is where he says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Once again, this is just not words. He wasn't just spewing off something that was like an introduction that we might put off in a letter. These are inspired words and have a lot of truth in it. Let me ask you, when was the last time 
you greeted someone in a letter like that. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Can't say that I've actually used those words. But I find this interesting that John, what he does in this verse 2, what he does is he measures the worth and the health of Gaius not by his physical well-being but by his spiritual well-being, his spiritual health, his spiritual status. You see, his prayer was that his ongoing physical well-being might keep up, it might prosper, and that it might be successful. How successful? Just like his spiritual health was. Some have suggested that Gaius was a little bit sick or whatever, but there's no indication of that. He, kind of, he could have been, um, but the point is made here. But I don't, I don't want to read too much into this, but I, I often believe that we can fall short on this. I honestly do. You see, we often wish and hope and pray and are concerned for our own or our other people's physical well-being. And, and don't get me wrong, we do need to take care of our bodies and our physical well-being and we need to be concerned with other people's physical well-being because after all, our bodies belong to the Lord, right? And we're to be good stewards of them. But it seems often that we don't have the same prayer for concern or wishes and desires for our own or one another's spiritual health. What this greeting here highlights for us is this. The real measure and worth of any person is a vibrant, healthy, healthy energy in the Lord. That's what it highlights. And how good it would be if our physical well-being kept up with that. Now let's get up close and personal on this. Would you, would I, want our physical strength to match our present spiritual strength in the Lord? That's a question. Would you want your physical strength to match your spiritual strength in the Lord? Some of us older saints here might well say, oh yes to that. Because we appreciate how the outward man is quickly perishing more than probably the younger folk do. But we do know that the inward man is being renewed day by day, right? That's right, isn't it, Kevin? My point here is this. If your physical well-being was a reflection of your spiritual status, what would you look like? Let me say that again. If your physical well-being was a reflection of your spiritual state, what would you look like? Would you be a robust individual, strong and vigorous? Or would you be doddering sickly, weakly and barely able to move? Sadly, some of us take better care of our bodies than we do with our souls, right? If that is the case, let us repent this morning and turn this around. That would be a great New Year resolution to carry on right through for the rest of our lives. So from verses 3 to 8, John now returns to this godly Gaius. 
And what he does here is he highlights the outward evidences of this, what I mentioned before, this tremendous impact and influence the Lord's love and truth had in his life. In other words, he was beloved, he was divinely loved, and Gaius did not keep the secret. This Gaius was not only loved and highly valued by John for his spiritual vitality, he was a living testimony to others around him. You see, Gaius was a man whose love for the truth caused him to what? Walk in the truth. That's what he's got here. He walked in the truth. In other words, Gaius puts into practice what God had put in him. This divine love, this agape love, this God's love erupts and, gush, and gushes from this man towards God's people. Now it's easy to say, oh yes, I love God and we come here and worship and we express our love to God and prayer and so forth. But you know, the real genuine measure of genuine love for God is how we will love others. First John says that. If you don't love, if you don't love your brethren... You don't, you don't love me. That's what he kind of says there. You don't know me. And so what this walking in the truth news did was it brought John, the Apostle John, great joy. It encouraged him immensely. Why? Simply because Gaius did not stifle the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what the first gift of the Spirit of God in that list in Galatians 5.22 is? Is love. Well, Gaius did not stifle that. He lived out his faith. And so Gaius was, was God's beloved and he was God's trophy on display in his life. Now, folks, that's how it should be for all of us as believers, right? We should be God's trophy of display of his love. Shouldn't we, the beloved of God, also earn that title from our brothers and sisters through how we love one another? In other words, it should be displayed and it should be known. It shouldn't be kept secret. There should be evidence of that divine love erupting from us toward one another. No doubt most of us here can claim to have God's truth in us. That is true. We will claim, yes, I, I, I believe in God's truth. I have God's truth and, and I know God's truth. I, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's truth is in me. But does that truth come alive? That's the question. Do we live it out? Many of us are known to hold the truth but we but are we seen as those who allow the truth to hold us? That's what it's about. We live in a day when, when knowledge and facts seem to have precedence. But dear people, nothing counts more for God than a holy lived life. Well, this man Gaius, you know what he was? He was a living sermon. He wasn't just words, he was a living sermon. His life was a message of love and truth. And can I say, and I do know, that most people would rather see a sermon than hear one, right? 
Let us be like Gaius and walk in the truth. But another aspect of this man walking in the truth was his willingness and practice of hospitality. We see this in verses 5 and in the beginning of verse 6 where you are acting faithfully. You see, Gaius was a guy who loved throwing open his home to those who had gone out preaching the gospel. And there were many itinerant preachers in that day and they would go from here and there. We saw that in, in, in 2 John. That was the same kind of deal. Men of God who would go around and they would preach and they would call in on established churches, assemblies, and they would be offered hospitality. But of course, you know, whenever there's good, there's bad that comes. And in the case of Second John, there were those hucksters and shysters, as we have today, who would preach supposedly in the name of the Lord, but they were false teachers. And that's where the chosen lady was maybe a little bit too open. She wasn't discerning who was false and who was true. And so she's reminded... Don't even have these guys in your house. Well, John here, he was one who was known for his hospitality. He's extended his hospitality not only to those whom he knew, but also to those who were strangers to him. And John says of this action that he was faithful in this ministry, verse 5. In other words, his hospitality was in sync with his Christian character. Well, here John commends Gaius' hospitality toward teachers of the truth. Now, as we think of hospitality, it seems that this is a very important ministry in the New Testament. We can read of hospitality all the way through. Matter of fact, you go right through the Bible. As we talked about last Christmas Eve service and last Sunday as well, that hospitality is part and parcel of Middle Eastern and especially Jewish culture. And it seems to be a very important ministry in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, it's implied there that if we entertain the Lord's people, it's the same as if we entertain the Lord himself. Did you know that? That's something to think about, isn't it? He says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. There's the principle. Then on the other hand, if we fail to entertain the Lord's servants, the opposite is implied in the same extent in verse 45. He says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, taking a quantum leap into our modern day times, I do know, and you will all know, we have not home. All, we do not all have homes that are conducive to entertaining and hosting the Lord's servants. I believe it was the same in biblical times. Sometimes the church met. I'm, I'm thinking of those um, those early disciples in Acts. They were they were they were in a house. They were in a, a an upper room, and. That, and uh, and there are other occasions they met in a house. Now, it had to be someone who obviously had a house that was conducive to holding a reasonable amount of people in those cases. Not everyone had that. But that's not saying that our homes and our wallets should be closed to this rewarding ministry. They should be open. They should be open. Never let us become known for being inhospitable at home 
on our church gatherings. I think it's atrocious if we have visitors come here and I don't believe it's ever happened and, for, and to be standing back there and no one being hospitable to them before they leave, even on those occasions. As a matter of fact, we should always consider putting our resources to better use for the hospitality, especially for the Lord's people. Why is that? Because it's, as we have recorded here, it's a faithful ministry. It's a faithful ministry that supports God's work and one that brings great reward. I love the reward concept here. I really do. And if we're all truthful, we love the idea of rewards, right? I have experienced this hospitality as I know many of you have from people in this assembly, this church. And might I say, when we buy a house in New Zealand, God willing, you know what? It's going to be a house with a guest room. So that you can come and stay when you come and visit New Zealand. That'll be a guest room. The Lord has given me the resources to do that. So there's no excuse for you coming either. Not come. You see, rewards are involved here, whether we like it or not, in this ministry. And we see here the first one is that Gaius was known by the whole church for his hospitality. In other words, Gaius soon earned a hospitality reputation. Imagine that. Verse 6, we see that. There's nothing wrong in having a reputation like that, folks. Actually, it's very rewarding. I would imagine to Gaius to have a reputation to be known. Oh, he's the hospitable one. He will never let anyone be homeless. If there's someone stuck for a bed for the night, oh, look at old Gaius. He's the one that'll put them up. That's an awesome reward and an awesome ministry. Sadly, when it comes to our love and action, so often in our modern day it's hushed up and the acknowledgement due to people for their faithfulness is played down rather than testified to the church. Well, not here. Gaius was known. He was known for his hospitality. So people talked. He was acknowledged for it. But more importantly, Gaius' name is forever inscripturated in God's word. He had an open home and an open heart and it's written down in the eternal record about Gaius. Now, that will never happen to us, no matter how hospitable, because God's word is complete, right? The canon of scripture is complete. But you know what? Every one of us can have a hospitality record in heaven. We sure can. It's not measured on how great, a hospi- 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 how great your hospitality is. It's whether you're hospitable or not. I'm thinking of that future reward at the judgment seat of Christ for our good works. Rewards are going to be given. Rewards will be given to Gaius for his faithful ministry. I wonder if anyone's going to get here a reward for being hospitable. Matthew again reminds us of this in chapter 10, verse 41. This is what he says. The one who receives a a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. There's the principle. There's the truth. 
In other words, the one who opens their homes and their pockets to preachers and teachers will share in the rewards of those preachers that they have entertained and they have cared for and looked after. This means those not called into the teaching ministry, by the way, you do not need to fret just because you can't get up here and do what I'm doing and not called to that, and we're all not, and just as well, there's a stricter judgment on those who do what I'm doing and Steve does. But this means for those who are not called into the preaching ministry that you can share in the reward of the preachers and teachers by showing hospitality to them, by being hospitable to them. You see, God always pays back for good that is done, folks. He always does. And pays back well packed down. Not a miserly reward, a generous reward. So be hospitable, however you can, with the resources God has given you. I was thinking about this and I'm so thankful that I was brought up in a home where my parents were always hospitable. I can remember as a kid, they never had much. They never owned their own home. They rented houses and they rented houses out in the country because it was cheaper than town. You know what? Their home was always open to speakers. I can remember numerous missionaries and preachers and speakers staying at our place because they had an open home. They were hospitable. And you know what? There was a benefit that flowed off me because it was put, it, it's indelibly impressed upon me. What I learned from those men of God as they sat and they discussed with my mum and dad things of the Lord as this, this little tyke that I was had a, probably a too big a listening ear. I drunk in all that was said. What a, what a wonderful benefit that was for me. There's rewards, right, in being hospitable. Then in John, in our letter here from the second part of verse 6 to 8, John encourages godly Gaius to continue his generous love and hospitality those who preach in the future. And John says this, John says, send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, we have that in verse 6, and support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. We see that in verse 8. You see, these faithful ministers of the truth, they needed financial support of believers simply because they looked to the Lord and they took nothing from the unconverted. By the way, this is why we don't go on fundraising ventures in this church. Many churches do, and I'm not judging them, but I'm only just looking at our church. You may ask, well, why don't we have a fundraiser? Why don't we sort of sell heaps of stuff and pull in money for this or that or whatever? One of the reasons is we don't go on fundraising ventures for the Lord's work because you know what? We're never, com- we're never commanded to raise funds, but we are commanded to give. We are commanded to give. We're never told to raise funds from the unconverted. So these are the kind of men we need to support, folks. Why? Because it's the name of the Lord that is at stake here. It's the name of the Lord that is at stake. You see, if God's servants go without, it reflects the value we have on the name of the Lord and his gospel. It really does. And here Gaius and all believers are encouraged to what? To support or receive such men so that we may be what? Fellow workers with the truth and helping the truth go forward to a lost world. You see, folks, there's no such thing and we should never allow it to happen 
for lone rangers to go out on God's mission. And there are a few of them out there, lone rangers. You see, God's truth is spread across the globe by faithful workers and they cannot do what they've got to do alone. We need to see ourselves here as a team who supports and receives God's servants. How wonderful to hear when we get to heaven those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or, well done, good and faithful fellow worker with the truth. See, just as the Lord in love received us and faithfully supports us, he does that, right? He received us in love and he doesn't leave us alone. He continues to support us. So just as the Lord has done and is doing that, so we should in love and truth receive and support his servants. So godly Gaius, he's indeed worthy of our emulation, right? He was beloved of God and his people. He walked his chalk and was faithful in his hospitality towards the Lord's servants. Now briefly, let us look at a contrast. We're going to have a look at the dictatorial diatrophies in verses 9 and 10. It seems like there are many churches that have members who like to be boss and have their way in the church. And you may be thinking of situations that you have even experienced where you've seen this type of leadership in the church. And it can be that even some pastors forget that their role is servanthood and in their forgetfulness or their ignorance or their blatant pushing ahead, what they do is they assume dictatorial power over the people that they are called to shepherd and nurture. It seems to be part of our fleshly DNA. Even Jesus' disciples had an underlying issue on this, remember? They wanted to know who would be the greatest in the kingdom, Matthew chapter 18. So they were tainted with this authoritative power thing, preeminence thing. But Jesus had to remind them that their model of ministry was not like the Romans, who what? Who lorded it over people. No, their model is not to be like that. Their model is like the Saviour who came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here in Asia Minor there was this church with a man called Diotrephes who had this hugely exaggerated view of his own importance. And he grew into a virtual dictator in the local church. He was prideful, he had an inflated ego and a a violent jealousy for what he considered to be his right and his right alone. This man had forgotten or chose to ignore that Christ is the head of the church. And he also did untold harm to the truth of God by refusing the Apostle John and others on the pretext of being faithful to God. He was a man who accused, he slandered, he spoke maliciously against the apostle and other faithful teachers simply because they threatened his so-called seat of power. 
And whoever in the church confronted Diotrephes, if there was someone who confronted Diotrephes about his dictatorialness, or whoever showed hospitalities to a visiting preacher of the truth, you know what Diotrephes did? He excommunicated them. He said, get out of here. We don't want you back here. Such conduct is nothing but what I call popery. You know what? And God hates it. God hates it. Sadly, there always have been the diotrophies in churches who rule with fear and intimidation. Sadly. But more sadly is this. In fear or in the name of tolerance, many people just sit and they refuse to deal with this diotrophies type leadership. They sit and do nothing. That's more sad. But we see here, John's not afraid to confront such a sinner what for? for the good of the church and the honour of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. He allows God's truth to say what it says for the love of the church. That's what he does. Once again, thinking about this, I know a man very similar to a diatrophies. And as a pastor, he went from church to church, from church to church, from country to country. In the end, there was no church to be had so that he could wield his power. This is true. So what does he do? And you see this over and over again. His church is reduced to his own family. And so he continues to make his family the church. And with his twisted, selfish ego, he ends up spiritually abusing his very own family and bringing great harm and lasting pain to them all. That's a diatrophies, and that's where it'll take him. Dear people, when God's truth is practiced, you know what it'll produce? It'll produce love where God's people are nurtured and encouraged and built up in the faith, never abused and discouraged. Never. And finally, we see the devout Demetrius in verses 11 and 12. Now, before John points Gaius to an example for him to follow, uh, and, and he really wants to, he says, Gaius, you know, let, let, let me... Let me show you someone whom you can emulate, you yourself, what he does, he, he, he warns, John warns his readers, do not ever follow diatrophies because what he does is evil. We see that in verse 11. You need to follow one who is good because good is from God and the kind of evil that diatrophies practices indicates that he does not even personally know God as his saviour. That's what it means, has not seen God. He may speak all the right things and he may preach and communicate well, but when the rubber hits the road, this man is an unregenerate. He has not seen God. And so what John does is he then points Gaius and all of us even here this morning to devout Demetrius. He's the kind of man, John, that, Gaius, that you can emulate. He's the kind of man... NCC here this morning that we can emulate 
He's such a man that when he comes to you, don't be like Diotrephes and refuse him entry. You welcome him, but you receive him. And just in case you're not getting it right, John says, let me give you three sources that speak volumes of the noble character of Demetrius so that you know he is the real McCoy, the real deal, the genuine article, a man of God. You know, from time to time, over the years, I've actually been asked to write many references for people, usually character references, maybe people wanting a new job or doing this or doing that, and they need a character reference. Some I have refused for obvious reasons, but most I have written. But another thing that's obvious then when I'm asked to do that, I'm not the only one writing up such a character reference. Why is that? Well, what's the use of one character reference? I may be completely biased, right? I may be completely biased. But when a future employer or something receives several character references and they kind of all say the same thing, that holds a power of a lot more weight, right? And so this is what John does here. There are testimonials from three different sources. And these sources vouch that Demetrius is the real deal of a devout man of God who teaches the truth and in love for God, he practices it. The first one is, it says, he has a good testimony from everyone. You see that? In other words, there's no bad word about him. That's an awesome testimony to have, isn't it? He has a good testimony from everyone. The second one is the truth of God is lived out in his life and which, which vindicates him. He, he practices what he preaches. This man also is a living sermon. And the third one is John the Apostle adds his own personal testimony which kind of seals the deal. That's what he means there when he says and we add, at the end of verse 12, we add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So here we have a man who has a good reputation with everyone, who faithfully lived out the scripture of truth and also had the words of godly leaders vouching for his godly character. Now, don't get us wrong, don't get me wrong and don't misinterpret the scriptures by thinking that Demetrius was the standard of truth by which truth is measured and we are to emulate itself. No way. It was rather, truth was a standard by which Demetrius was tested. That was the standard. Truth was a standard and Demetrius was held up against that and he passed it with flying colours. He was well approved. So John says, follow this man. Why? Because his life emulates Jesus Christ. He follows Christ. And now we have the closing plan and benediction. So we've had a look at three men and now we see these last verses. And he closes this short letter in the same way as he closed this letter to the chosen lady in John chapter 2, or John 2 I should say. And what he basically says in this, he, he wants to delay any more discussion he doesn't want to go to any more detail. 
Because what I want to do is I want to pick up on all this discussion and, and, and talk face to face with you guys. As I said a few weeks back, it's one thing to write a letter and one thing to write an email. It's actually even one glorious thing to read the scriptures, you know what? But there's a lot more to be known yet than even is in the scriptures. And one day that will be revealed when we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. Matter of fact, the scriptures will come completely alive and we're going to learn so much more because God's revelation of himself is progressive as it is through the Old Testament into the New Testament and it's all not finished yet. One day all will be revealed when we meet the Lord face to face. Apostle John reminds us of what this meeting might be. Challenges us actually. He challenges us in his first epistle. This is what he says. 1 John 2.28 Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears get that? When he appears this is the face to face meeting time when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You see folks if we are found walking in the truth and practicing the truth in love by being hospitable to other faithful believers who preach the truth, we will be emulating godly examples who hold the truth and live out that truth. Is that what it will be? I pray it is. May it be that this church always allows truth to prevail because when truth prevails, the Lord is glorified in us. May the new year see truth and love practiced among us like never before. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we bow and acknowledge that you are sovereign Lord over all things, over all our lives. We thank you for this last year. You are good all the time. Even when negative and bad things happen, Father, you never change, you're still good. Even though we cannot understand and do not understand so many of the present things that happen, we know that you only ever do that which is right. And so, Father, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you that we can follow you and we can walk in the truth and we can practice that truth by demonstrating your love to others, especially the saints. Help us in this, we pray. Keep us from any domineering spirit among us to help us to be true servants and considering others better than ourselves. Well, Father, as we look to the new year, we want to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Help us in this, we pray. The, fl- the spirit is so often willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us to see that our physical well-being is one thing, but our spiritual well-being is quite another. And we know that that is what you measure our worth and value by. And so, Father, help us to live for you. Help us to walk with you. And help us to love one another for Christ's sake. Amen.